This is the EFCA Theology Podcast, made to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. Since our earliest days, Christians have affirmed that Jesus is fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. But what do we actually mean by phrases like one person or two natures? Further, where and how does the Bible teach these things? And perhaps most pressing, how does our belief in Jesus' full divinity and full humanity shape how we live and serve? On this episode of the podcast, we share an interview with Pastor Matt Mitchell on this important topic. Welcome to the EFCA Theology Podcast. I'm Brian Farone, and I serve as the Director of Biblical Theology and Credentialing for EFCA West, a district in the EFCA which includes Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and parts of Nevada, Idaho, Texas, and California. Today we're at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, talking with Dr. Matt Mitchell, pastor of Lance Evangelical Free Church in Lance, Pennsylvania, about one of our central convictions, namely the belief that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Mm. Now, in just a moment, we're going to get to that discussion. But before that, I would like to start by asking you, Matt, a question. Actually, I want to start, honestly, back up. I want to thank you for being willing to do this. Uh, thanks, Brian. It's a joyful privilege to be included. Now, in a, in a second, we're going to talk about this. But I, I do like, at the beginning of these interviews, to give uh, the people I'm speaking with a chance to share about the books they're reading um, often uh, there there is a book or two on the topic at hand that is very helpful or very encouraging. So maybe you could share a few of those books with us uh, related to Christology. Absolutely. Yeah, I love to recommend books. Um, the one that's helped me the most with today's topic, and I'm sure I'll mention it again and again as this interview goes on, is God the Son Incarnate, The Doctrine of Christ by Stephen J. Wellam in Crossway's Foundations of Evangelical Theology series. Wellam is a professor at Southern Seminary. It was because I was reading Wellam this last Christmas that I suggested that we do Christology in this interview. Not because I'm good at it, but because it was totally feeding my mind and soul. Wellam is incredibly helpful in understanding and unpacking the classical theological categories of Christology, especially the distinction between nature and person, which I know we're going to talk about in just a bit. Anything else you want to add at that point? You mentioned here, and I, I love this. I love that book by Wellam. I think that's going to be helpful for us. You also said you're reading some other things, and I'd be interested if there's anything off topic that might be helpful to you. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'm reading a lot about right now that just fascinates me, and I think that we need more of in the evangelical church in America today, is biblical lament. I'm reading uh, Rejoicing in Lament by J. Todd Billings at Western Theological Seminary in Michigan, Brazos Press. The subtitle is Wrestling with Incurable Cancer and Life in Christ. So it's obviously not just academic, but this professor guy who's suffering, he's, he's really suffering, is also steeped in the scriptures and in the biblical language of lament that says, you know, this is not good. This, this isn't right. This hurts. Lord, help. Why, Lord? This is not the way things ought to be. Um, so like I said, I think the American church doesn't speak that language very well on the whole. Is coming back. I'm seeing encouraging things out there being produced that retrieve the lost language of lament. Michael Card, uh, the musician, wrote a little Nav Press book in 2005. It's on my nightstand right now, too, called A Sacred Sorrow, Reaching Out to God in the Lost Language of Lament. Wow. My uh, phrase for that is tear-filled faith. Lament is tear-filled faith. I'm not good at it. I, I don't like it, uh, but that's 
That doesn't mean I don't need it. Um, there is so much suffering that we experience, and there's so much the Bible's written in this genre. I mean, lamentations, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I want to learn more about that. Um, yeah. One of the things that happened to me when I came here to seminary was I, I discovered the place of suffering in the New Testament. I was, mm. I think I knew it was there. I didn't know how prominent it was. I didn't know that the New Testament authors thought that there was power in it. Mm. Um, this was news to me. The I'm, fellowship of sharing and Yeah, exactly. They, there was a place for it. It did something. And then I remember I came across this article by Carl Truman called What Do Miserable Christians mm-hmm. Sing? I don't know mm-hmm. if you've ever heard of this. Yes. And it was just this fascinating commentary on the fact that we tend to sing sort of saccharine, uh, fluffy, uh, joy and joy only and American joy only kind of songs. And, and I remember reading Truman's article and even hearing you talk about these books reminds me of that just that unique place that suffering has in God's plan for mm-hmm. us and his work in this world and the kind of faithful response it is to a broken world that's being mm-hmm. redeemed. So I appreciate you taking the time to share those. I know they're off topic, but I think it's fun to, <laughs> I think it's fun to sort of think about some other things um, before we think about the big stuff. Now we're going to think about the big stuff. All right. And so I want to start with my first question. Um, question one, uh, in Article 4, of our EFCA statement of faith, it's, we say this, we confess this. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. I'm going to read the whole statement. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, to begin, I want to kind of focus in on those words, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. And I'm going to ask you to do something that's probably not fair, certainly not easy. <laughs> but is, is, is I want to ask you, Matt, <clears throat> could you give us a good, understandable definition of what we mean when we say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, one person in two natures? No. <laughs> All right, we're done. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> I'll get as close as I can, though. Thank you. But this is, you know, it's just, it's the center of everything, right? Who yeah. Jesus is. It's the deep stuff. It's the deep end of the pool. Okay, so so fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. One person in two natures. Now, those two words probably need unpacking a little bit. Um, what's a person? What's a nature? Nature is actually the easier one to define. It's kind of the what something is. And nature is the collection of attributes and capacities and qualities that make up something. So with fully God, it's everything that it means to be God. It's the stuff, if I can use that word, of what it means to be God, the whatness of God. And so the same with fully man. The human nature is the whatness of being human. The collection, location of all the attributes and capacities and qualities of human are what a human nature is. It's human stuff. So nature is the what? Nature is the attributes. Right. So the person is the who that possesses the what. Now, I find it really hard to explain what a person is without using the word person uh, in the definition. But You're you're not alone. (laughs) No. Uh, But the best I've seen is from Stephen Wellam, who says that a person is an active subject, or the I, capital letter I, of a nature, and that nature is the metaphysical location of the attributes and capacities, including will, mind, and psychological components. Or Herman Bovink said it like this, and I got this from Wellam, too. A person is the owner 
possessor, and master of a nature, the subject that lives, thinks, wills, and acts through nature, with all of its abundant content by which nature becomes self-existent and is not an accident of another entity. So I know that's a lot, but my way of boiling it down is that nature is what and person is who. And Jesus is a person with two what's, fully God and fully man. I find that very helpful, you know, to to kind of boil it down into this who and what distinction. And what I heard you saying here was uh, when we think of nature, we need to think of those attributes or characteristics Mm -hmm. um, or capacities, all those kind of things, all the adjective kind of things, the descriptors. And when we think of person, we need to think of the subject kind of things, of the who, of, of the identity, of the... And it's hard. It's one of those words that you want every time you define it, you want to use it in the definition. Right. And we were told somewhere in school that breaks some kind of rule. Um, so I love this distinction of the who and the what's. Um, and I love how you, how you kind of describe Jesus as he's one who mm-hmm. with two what's. I think mm-hmm. that's very helpful, man. And, and, and very strange. I mean, we don't experience anything like it. I mean, you and I, Brian, we're, we're persons that have one nature. There's yeah. one Brian Ferrone. Mm-hmm. Everybody says, praise the Lord for that. <laughs> yeah. and, and he has one nature, a, a human nature. One who, one what. But Jesus is one who, who has two what's. Both fully God, fully divine, and he, he always has been, as God the Son. And since the incarnation, he is fully man, fully human as well. And that's that's an amazing miracle. It's what we celebrate at Christmas every year. I like to change the name of Christmas Sunday at our church and call it Incarnation Sunday or Hypostatic Union Sunday, but you know, it just hasn't caught on yet. Doesn't have quite the same ring <laughs> no, to it. The advertising doesn't work out just no. like you would hope. You know, so I appreciate the clear definition. I find it very helpful, the who, what distinction. Um, but it does my mind's having a little gear lock up right now and mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand how can this work together? How can it be? Um, I know I'm a person with a who and a what. I have a nature and I'm a person. To, to try to get my mind around the idea that Jesus has two natures and yet is one person, how can it work together, Matt? How can this be? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we could stop here, too. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a mystery, right? Um, so I said hypostatic union here a second ago, and hypostatic is just an old word that basically means personal. So it's the personal union of two natures. And again, it's just it's the deep end of the pool. Now, we know it's logical. It's reasonable. It's not illogical or contradictory. We're not saying in the EFCA that Jesus is one person and he's also not one person or that he has two natures and he also does not have two natures. That would be nonsensical. But we are saying something mysterious, that he's the one person who possesses two natures. And how that can be is just simply a miracle of God. It's one of the biggest miracles of God by far. I mean, creation, incarnation, resurrection, these are the big ones. And it's at the center of everything. Now, there are a lot of ways to get this wrong. Uh, The early church dealt with all of them as they tried to understand the biblical data, the, the whole picture of who Jesus is from the Bible and put it all together in a coherent, biblically faithful way. And here, again, I recommend, um, Wellam's book for telling that story. The whole third part of the book unpacks the story of the struggle for formulating the orthodox doctrine of Christology in the early church leading up to the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. The council puts out this creed, which declares that at the incarnation, the eternal Son of God, the divine person, joined his divine nature with human nature to become the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's very helpful. 
Because I often say and feel and think that the Christian life is about rightly locating the mysteries mm. and and deciding that some there are some things, <clears throat> excuse me, that there are some things that are that that where we have to say we can't find an mm-hmm. answer that perfectly works in our minds. It doesn't mean there's not a coherent mm-hmm. logical reality to this, but that in some sense it is a little above our pay grade. Mm-hmm. And I think what I hear you saying here is we take the biblical data, we embrace it for what it is. Um, we know that as we live this out, it makes sense for us. We know Jesus was a man like us, and yet that he was fully God, that he was divine. We know that Jesus was one person, a coherent person, not two persons or a divided, strange person. Mm-hmm. But then when we say, how can this work out? I hear you kind of saying two things. On the one hand, embrace that mystery point. Mm-hmm. This is the part where we're supposed to say, I don't I don't know how mm-hmm. that could be. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, I see you saying, which is good, that there are good resources like Wellam's book that if you want to... Um, if you want to dig deeper and understand it better, you can get a larger grasp on this. It doesn't take away the mystery, but it mm-hmm. rightly situates it. Yes, so. right. I, this, these are things I know. These are things I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to say I don't know mm-hmm. things that I do know. Yeah. But I need to just confess the stuff I don't. That's right. That's right. And even embrace it. And that's a place mm-hmm. where I think our trust in God comes in and our experience of him. And so <clears throat> not unlike the doctrine of the Trinity if we take it and we say, oh, it's hard to understand, but we live it out every day and, and, we, and we understand it in practice some ways better. And, and I think this is maybe even one of those things. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to share on that, that second section where we're kind of wrestling on how this can be? Not that I could think of, yeah. Then I think a great way to kind of continue this conversation is to wrestle with some of the ways we can get wrong, mm-hmm. um, get this wrong. The early church had this data. They believed these things. It's not like they sort of defined orthodoxy. Um, kind of back onto the Bible, but they recognized mm-hmm. an orthodox way of speaking about this mm-hmm. in the fourth century. And as you mentioned, on the way up to that, they got it, they kind of bounced around and got it wrong. So let's talk a little bit about how we can get this wrong. Okay. Um, so there are four parts to our EFCA statement fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. And we can go wrong in all four of them. So we can go wrong in saying that Jesus is not fully God. That was the problem in the early church of Arianism. Arius thought that Jesus was a created being and not God the Son. Tremendously created being is just a, a mega being, but but a created being and not uh, the second person of the Trinity. But the Apostle Paul talked about Jesus as the one who was in very nature God, Philippians 2, and the one in whom all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, Colossians 2. And the Gospel of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on in that chapter, John 1, we find the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, not some lesser glory, but the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, we think that Jesus calling God his Father is no big deal, or that it means that Jesus is less than God in some way. You could think that. But when Jesus talked that way, the Jews of that day took up stones to kill him. They thought it was blasphemy because he was making himself equal with God. Yeah. That, that's the language from John 5. Yeah. We know these verses. Yeah. So on this first one, you're saying we can go wrong by saying that Jesus is not fully God, that it's not that no matter how grand the picture we paint of Jesus, if we don't give him mm-hmm. full equality with mm-hmm. God, possessing the full attributes of God, we, we go away from what the scriptures teach, what the Apostle Paul taught, what John taught in his gospel. Right. That's, that's what the Bible teaches. On the flip side, we could go wrong by saying that Jesus is not fully man. And that was the mistake of the Doceticists. They thought he just seemed like a human. 
and that was also the mistake of the of the uh, Apollinarians. Um, Apollinarius thought that basically it was only Jesus' body that was human, just flesh as flesh. He, he keyed off that word flesh, but not the whole package of the human nature, all the stuff of being a human, not just the you know the the meat yeah. suit. Um, kind of the this is kind of uh, Apollinarianism was kind of the God in a bod theology. Yeah. He's just kind of walking around uh, as you know. Uh, a, a body, yeah. and then God is kind of inhabiting that that body, kind of um, like a bad science fiction movie, almost, right? Right, right. Um, but that's not the picture we get in the Bible, isn't it? I mean the the Bible emphasizes that Jesus had everything that it means to be human. He had the full whatness of humanity, without sin, but fully human. Human emotions, human hunger, human thirst, fatigue, a human will, human grief. Um, like at the tomb of Lazarus, John 11. Those are human tears. Jesus wept points points to the humanity of Jesus. And it's human death, which is you know kind of the point. Yeah, right? um, Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So I hear you saying here that Another way we can go wrong and a temptation of Christians in the early church and even a temptation today is, and I think maybe even out of good motive, not wanting to taint Jesus in some way, Mm -hmm. to try to formulate some understanding of Jesus that denies his full humanity, wanders away from how the scriptures portray him as a full, real human man. Mm -hmm. And living the human life. Living the human life. Fully. That's very good. Well, how else? Um, Okay, so in our statement, the third part would be, one person. So we can go wrong again by thinking that Jesus is two persons. Two who's, to use that language. Uh, in the early church, it was the uh, this was the implication of the views of Nestorius. We can debate about whether Nestorius actually believed that or not, but the Nestorianism that kind of was following him. Uh, Nestorius, um, he was good at understanding there were two natures, and so it began to seem from his teaching like there were two persons hiding in there and operating in Jesus. Yeah. And here's why it's helpful to remember this distinction between persons and natures. Natures are not agents. They don't do things on their own. They're not, they're not subjects. Yeah. You know, oh, the, the, the human nature of Jesus did that. Mm-hmm. Or, the, or the divine nature of Jesus did that. Well, Jesus, God the Son, through his human nature did that. But he's the active Subject. I guess what I hear you saying is another way here that we can go wrong is by thinking that the Jesus two persons by so carefully guarding that that the two natures exist mm-hmm. and that they are they are distinct they don't mm-hmm. they're not just kind of interwoven in together that we can start to pull him apart and it's almost like a, a modern conception of schizophrenia mm-hmm. that, that there's one Jesus in there that does X and there's one Jesus in right. there that does Y maybe one gets a capital letter and one gets a lowercase letter and we right. try to parse it out this way. And that simply doesn't do justice to the Bible's picture of him as one whole, complete person. Right, right. Fred Sanders calls it Jesai, that there's uh, more than one Jesus in there, which is just a terrible word, and so we need to stay away from that. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and when you read the Gospels, that's what we see. We see one person. He, he might be both God and man, but there ain't two of them. You aren't seeing double. You see one compelling person in the Gospels and in the whole rest of the New Testament. That's right. That's right. How else can we go wrong? Well, the fourth, the fourth way would be uh, to 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 get a uh, to have the two natures. Well, in the words of the creed, 
confused, changed, divided, or separated. Somehow combine, combine those natures in a wrong way. Get them mixed up together into some strange concoction. In the early church, that was Eutyches. Eutyches wanted to combine the two natures so you got a third nature, like a horse and a donkey mule. But the Son of God remained God. He never gave up being God. He just added to his divinity real humanity. So these two natures, the two what's, are always joined together now in Jesus, but they're not changed or confused. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It does make sense. And I, I think walking through these things, it's helpful to see, it's helpful to learn from the past and how people have gone wrong so that we can confess today and believe um, things that make sense. And it makes sense that Jesus is one person. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that he doesn't have some kind of strange third type of nature mm -hmm. that would sort of be human mm -hmm. and would be mostly divine, but rather mm -hmm. he has two complete natures. He has those two what's, that they together are in that one person. And that is who we, that's the Savior we know mm -hmm. and follow. Mm -hmm. That's the Savior who was crucified mm -hmm. and rose again. That's the Savior who lives now and will reign mm -hmm. forever. That's the one we love. That's the one we love. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, some people would say, why does this stuff matter so much? And and I think, even as I think about an analogy, you know, why does it matter to know my wife as she really is and love her mm -hmm. for who she really is? Mm -hmm. It matters that we know these truths about Jesus because we want to know him rightly, right? Mm -hmm. We right. want to love him truly. We want to understand how he is our Savior as fully as possible. You want to worship the right God. That's right. And, yeah. and this is who he is. That's right. This is the God-man. It's important to, to get that right. Yeah. Now, these are powerful truths. Um, they have deeply shaped each of us, millions of others, the world we live in, and they will shape eternity. Mm. My question is, and I think one of the good ways to get at why these truths matter so much is, when we talk about them, in one sense we could talk about them in the abstract, but much more powerful is to talk about them in the ways they've impacted our lives. Sometimes we can think about how to live them forward by hearing how people have lived them in the past and the difference they have made. So I want to ask you, um, are there two or three or one maybe specific times in your life where this truth that Jesus is fully God, fully man, one person in two natures, has made a real difference in your life and ministry? Like every day. Right, right. <laughs> but let's pick every a couple. Every single day. Um, I'd say especially at Christmas and Easter. Um, but, I mean, this is this is kind of the truth that holds the whole universe together. So every single thing is affected by this. It's, I mean, there's, in the, in the whole of Christianity, probably the Trinity itself is a higher truth to contemplate. But this is really part of that mystery, too. So, um, uh, so Christmas and Easter. Um, at Christmas uh, this last year, I was reading Wellam. I was thinking about this interview, and I got to do one of the, my favorite kind of hospital visit, which is a newborn, born around Christmas time. And I got to hold a little guy, and his parents are looking over, and they're smiling. They're as happy as they ever be. It's the firstborn for for them. And I'm holding him, and I think, ah, oh, God the Son took on all of this when he came on his father's mission. Um, so there's there's wonder and worship uh, that this doctrine creates in us. I mean, I mean we, did, we didn't solve this doctrine today, right? Um, we gave the broad contours of the doctrine, fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. We said what it is and where we could go wrong, but we don't know how this is possible. And that's a good thing for us too. So I guess part of, Kind of this, you're asking the so what question. Part of 
part of that for me is mystery is good for me. Um, it's good for my soul to know there are things I don't know. There's things I do know. One person, I, d- I don't have to divide him up somehow. Um, but I don't have a clue as to how this is possible or how it works. It's just, it's miraculous. Um, and that's not a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. a good thing. I love that story, that picture. And when you have those moments where you encounter, I mean, it's a wonder that children can be born in the mm-hmm. way they are. And mm-hmm. anybody who, who can't grasp that probably just hasn't held a baby recently, mm-hmm. right? And I think when we have those moments and then we reason back to the wonder of Christ, um, it's good for our souls and it reminds us of what it really is a miracle. Um, the incarnation really is the defining miracle of human history. Mm-hmm. Um, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. Anything else when you think about how this has uh, really made a difference for you? Anything else you want to share? Well, I guess I just want to say more on that, that mystery leads me into worship. Just like I need biblical lament, like we were talking about earlier, you know, there's me not understanding things tells me that there are things that are greater than me. And that is good for my soul, not just the knowing... Uh, knowing that I'm limited, but knowing that there are wonderful things beyond my comprehension that lead me into into wonder, yeah. uh, in, in, into worship. The other the other side, I guess, would be you know from Christmas to Easter, because when Jesus came and and he did this miracle, when God did this miracle of the incarnation, it was in the words of the Nicene Creed for us and for our salvation. Mm. So there's no salvation unless this doctrine is true. Yeah. The, the cross, he took on flesh, he took on humanity so that he could die as our as our representative and, and substitute. If he doesn't do that, then he doesn't, that Hebrews 2 passage we read, we don't, we don't get saved. Uh, and, and he needs to be fully God to personally reconcile us to God. And he needs to be both of those at the same time and forever uh, without confusion or mingling or separation. <laughs> For us to be saved now and forever. And and he is. That's that's who Jesus is. If he stopped being that person, we would be doomed. Yeah. I mean, there's just, there's just nothing stronger than this. I'm often asked, why does the EFCA spend so much energy in trying to keep its its doctrine healthy and trying to stay faithful to the scriptures, um, even as we try to be open and be a mm-hmm. believers only but all believers church? Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of energy on trying to to have our, our, the worship of our churches rooted in the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think what you just shared is the reason. It's, it's that the gospel holds together in the particulars. The gospel mm-hmm. holds together in light of a real Jesus mm-hmm. who is really a person, who really has both natures fully, completely, who really died on, our cro- on the cross. That Jesus died on the cross. That Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus reigns in glory now. And, that, and I, what, I, what I hear you saying is these truths are when they come down on any given Easter Sunday or another Sunday, mm-hmm. Sunday, they make a huge difference in the way that we worship, in the way that we um, that we come before our God. We're talking about ultimate reality here. That's right. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.